Give the Lord a big hand this morning. He indeed is worthy of our praise today. I give your neighbor a high five. Tell him you're looking good this morning. And you may be seated. I've been doing a series the last few weeks called Balancing Act. Can you say that with me? Balancing Act. And it's been a series to try to help us to be spiritual people in a material world. How to be a, keep a spiritual focus in a world where there's material things that are pushing at me from every corner. We're going to start with a little video this morning. It's about a guy. His name is Nick Walinda. Uh, he, in about 25 minutes, it took him, but there was a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls is the highest waterfall in North America. He's 200 feet above the waterfall. You'll see the wind is blowing. It's raining. But uh, this guy's doing something pretty incredible. But I, want, I show this to you because I want you to think of the idea of a balancing act. All right, take a peek, and then we'll be into the Word together. All right, how many daredevils out there this morning that would do something like that? Let me see your hand here. One, two, three, four people that need our prayers this morning. If you guys will just stand right here. Well, listen, I want you to think about it. That's pretty incredible. I remember when I was a kid, I lived in the country. There's a railroad track by my house, and I can remember trying to walk down the railroad track, and I'd do my arms like that, and I might make it three steps or ten yards, but sooner or later I'd fall off. I want you to imagine it was, that, it was that long pole he had that helped him stay the course. And I want you to imagine if on one end of the pole was the spiritual and one was the material, and Jesus is his goal in life, and we're trying to do this balancing act as we go through life and not be pulled into the trap that would make us fall off the edge. Now, last week I talked about biblical principles of prosperity. You might really enjoy that if you went back and, and listened to that. How I many know the Bible tells us that God is the one that gives us the ability to obtain wealth? God is the one that causes us good things to flow into our hands. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It doesn't mean any, every Christian drives a Rolls Royce. But what it simply means is that our tomorrows can be better than our todays if we live by God's principles. And how many know we all need that? So that's kind of what we've been talking about. This morning, I want you to look at 1 Timothy 6 with me, verse 9. This is just a bit of review. Uh, 1 Timothy 6 is our text for the series. And in 1 Timothy 6, he talks about first contentment. That in Christ, that we can be content with what we have. Whether we have a lot or whether we have a little, how many know it's Christ in us that helps us be happy in our lives? Then he gives us a warning. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And then he concluded with the fact that of how to literally find this balance in life, what was the key or what was the secret to, to, uh, to living a life that, uh, that doesn't fall into the trap? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, this is a warning from Paul the Apostle about what can happen in our material world if it's out of balance. Uh, I come to church, I live in Redwater, and I come down Highway 59, and when I make that big loop by Walmart onto I-30, this past winter there were several days, it was a little rainy, and it was cold, and it was a sign that said, watch for icing on bridge. Now, when that sign was blinking at me, I immediately put both hands on the wheel, took my foot off the gas, and even one day I got off on the access road because I knew there was danger ahead. So how many know when the Bible gives us a warning, uh, we, need to, we need to perk up so lest we uh, fall off the bridge? But 1 Timothy 6, verse 9, it says, People who long to be rich fall into temptation, and notice this word, they are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, that phrase, the love of money and the longing to be rich, are synonymous. But the love of money 
is an abstract term. It's, it's not a feeling, but you can see it in our actions. A person that loves money, and here's a definition, will do anything to get it, and they'll do anything to keep it. A person will lie, they'll steal, they'll cheat, they'll intimidate, they'll do whatever they have to to be able to get money and do whatever they have to to keep it. And that's what happens is our heart can become polluted or captured by that. Uh, he goes on to say is that some people craving money have wandered from the true faith. And that's the danger. That's why they were more concerned than not just with icing on that bridge, but if you slipped or you hit it too hard, what would happen if you rolled off that bridge and you would literally die? And that's what he's saying is if we get trapped by this snare, it could destroy our spiritual lives. But verse 11, we like Timothy are a man of God, so we're to run from all these evil things. Now, I mean, in the Bible, money and possessions are not evil. Uh, there have been strains of teaching in Christianity that imply that the material world was an evil world and only the spiritual world is a good world. Not true. The Bible says that we're to pray each day that God would give us what? Daily bread. It's food to eat. It's gas for your car. It's money for your house payments. It's whatever it takes to make life run. It's money to put in that little inevitable hand. If you have children or teenagers, it's extended your way. That's daily bread. The Bible teaches in Timothy that God gives us money to enjoy, which simply means that God puts things in our hand. If you have the ability to have a nice house, a nice car, you don't need to feel guilty in your life because God is the one that supplies these things to us. And how many know He's a good God? And just like as a father, I want to bless my children, God wants to bless His children. So the Bible teaches that money is neither good nor bad, but it's what we do with it, how many know, that can do something really good or something that can lead us in a ditch. In our conference this week, one of the reasons I like to connect with other pastors and missions is because we learn about opportunities around the world to take the gospel. There was a brother from Cuba that was there, uh, had ministry in Cuba. Cuba has about 11 or 12 million people. It's been a nation where socialism, or actually communism, has defined Cuba. And what that works down to is not only are grocery shelves empty, but uh, uh, a doctor in Cuba who just got a raise makes $67 a month. Now think about that. And it's amazing how America is headed in that direction, and they are headed in the direction of freedom in America. Now, the church in Cuba is asking for a million Bibles because there's such a hunger for the Word of God. Now, that's pretty incredible. Twelve million people, they want a million Bibles. And uh, in this little globe up here, people you'll see drop in some money. Whenever we get $1,000, we buy Bibles with the money in that globe. So I was able to commit to buy 500 Bibles. Now, how many know 500 Bibles is great? But what if there was more money in the fund? And what if not only 500 Bibles, 5,000, 50,000, come on, half a million? It's just it, so money can be used to do some exceptional things in in God's kingdom. So money is a good thing, but if we get trapped by it, that's where the trouble begins. I want to show you a little picture on the screen here. Uh, Rocky Raccoon got caught in my garden. Can you see him? Now, I planted my cabbage, and uh, lo and behold, a rabbit or something uh, just nailed them down. All the broccoli was gone, so we decided we'd get serious, put some carrots and some rabbit food in the cage, and lo and behold, he got trapped. Now, when he, once he got in there, he realized he couldn't get out, and he realized, and little, rat, and little raccoon thought, I'm in big, big trouble. But when he smelled the carrots, when he smelled the food, and he probably stuck his little hand in there and tried to get one, and he, re, he thought, well, you know what? I want some more of that. So he went into the trap, and it closed, and he's relocated to your neighborhood, okay? So, so that's where he is. There's two of them walking around your neighborhood right now. But what I want to use this as a picture as this morning is Satan wants to bait a trap with money to capture our hearts. And how many know the issue is not our bank account, but the issue is our heart? 
Because the greatest commandment in all the Bible is what? That Jesus said we're to love him with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength. And that's what Satan is looking for, is to trap our heart. And that's what I want to help you with this morning, of how, how to find the balance between your spiritual and your material world. Uh, uh, let's, uh, let's look at Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to give you three examples of some guys that messed up badly, but let's look first at Jesus about how he dealt with the temptation. And the first point is that Satan will use our money as bait to capture our heart. Uh, 40-day temptation. Jesus has just finished this great fast. He's preparing his public ministry, and he has his first encounter with Satan. Matthew 4, verse 8, the devil led Jesus to the top of a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. Now, that word splendor, implicit in it, is, is, is uh, the glory. I mean, whatever, whatever is fashionable about Dallas. I mean, if you ate on top of that, you know, the little tower downtown with the glass hotel. I mean, it's a picture of opulence. It's a picture of riding in a limousine. It's a picture of, you know, your own private jet. It's a picture of going anywhere and doing anything that you want to do. It's, the, it's this beautiful lodge that's built where there's duck hunting on one side and turkey hunting on another. And, and there's camouflage shotgun, camouflage shotguns. Okay, there's real diamonds and no bling. There's, there's shopping without buying sales stuff and going through the racks. But he showed him all of this stuff that's out in the world. And notice what he said about it, verse 9. And mind you now, things are not bad. But if things capture our heart and control us, that's where trouble begins. Notice verse 9. The devil said to Jesus, when somehow he showed him this great splendor, he said, if you will bow down and... What will I give you? I'll give you all these. Now, isn't that interesting? For possessions that would rust and be destroyed and you cannot take with you when you die, I want you to worship me. I, I want you to give me your soul. I want you to give me your priority. I want you to, I want you to do anything to be able to keep this, what I'm going to put in your hands. And Jesus responded as hopefully we would. Get away from me, Satan. For it's written in the Scriptures, Worship the Lord your God and Him only. Serve Him with absolute single-heartedness. And here's what I want you to see in this trap. Satan and Jesus are after the same thing. They're after our heart. They're after our worship, our allegiance. That is, and I don't just mean clapping and lifting your hands. Worship is that which we adore. Worship is the one that we serve. Worship is the one that we honor. Worship is the one that we orient our life and our time around. And it's either Jesus or it can be this trap of materialism. Now, John chapter 12, let's, uh, let's, look, at, uh, uh, let's look at Judas. And don't believe that this can't happen to you. It can happen to all of us. I look at my life. I'm 56. My daughter's 22. She has, in some ways, more passion in her spiritual life than I do. Something can happen to our hearts over time. I've known Christians over the years who started out. How many know when you're starting out and don't have much money or you don't have many things? How many know you've got to pray a lot? Because when you're desperate, you're going to seek God. You know, the Bible says in James that those that are poor are rich in what? Rich in faith. And that doesn't extol poverty, but it simply means if you don't have something, you'll, you, you just got to hustle, you got to pray, you got to believe God when you get it. But once God starts blessing you, I've watched this over the years, how money can pull people away from spiritual priorities. I've watched people who've been blessed, and maybe they're able to, to buy, I don't know what, a ski boat, or maybe they're able to buy a, 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 a lake home or something that's, that's, that's a good thing. 
But what happens is, is I've watched them, and somehow it's almost like they used to teach Sunday school or, or work with the children, or they had a place of serving the Lord, very missions-minded, might only be able to buy one Bible at a time, but very, very important to them. But it's almost like when their life began to get a, a little more prosperous, the priority of God began to be less and less. Because after all, if you've got to work six days a week, come on, the boat's in the garage, I mean, you've got to use it. And before you know it, listen, nothing's wrong with taking vacations and getting away and having some fun. But when our life is defined by it, as I kind of pick on my hobby, turkey hunting, uh, listen, it's great to turkey hunt a few times, but I could easily take three months of my life, every day of my life, and begin in Florida and Alabama and Mississippi and hunt in Arkansas and Texas and Oklahoma, come on, and Missouri and end up in Michigan and take literally three months of my life, not come to church a time and take all my money and invest in my hobby. That's when what was a blessing turns into a trap, and it grabs you. Now, Judas did this. John chapter 12, verse 3, the scenario, Judas, how he got caught in this trap. And, and you'll see Jesus or Judas loved money, but here's the definition. He was willing to do anything to get it. He was willing to go to any length to get it. Now, Jesus is about to be crucified. It's the last days of his life. Uh, Mary, in her great love for him, comes to him, and she takes a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume. I want you to imagine a small cup from Starbucks or McDonald's. Fill that with oil or perfume or anointing oil. And she excuse me, anointed Jesus' feet with it. He's laying on a couch. All the disciples and apostles are there. And she literally pours it on his feet, on his foot. She rubs his foot. She takes her hair. She wipes it. She does the other foot, pours it on the ground. This fragrance is in the air. But look at verse 4. And I want you as we go to compare the hearts of the two people. Verse 4, Judas Iscariot said the perfume was worth a year's wages. Some scholars would say it was a lifetime of savings. So I want you to think that she took everything that she owned. You imagine taking all your possessions, pawning them, selling them, everything in the savings and retirement accounts, buying perfume and pouring it out on Jesus' feet. Perfume was worth a year's wages. And, and listen to him. Now, he sounds like a good conservative treasurer, okay? It should have been sold in the money given to the poor. That sounds admirable. But verse 6, not that he cared for the poor, for he was a he was a thief, and since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often I'm telling you, people who love money will do anything to get it. So he stole it. Now, Matthew 26 adds to the story. Matthew 26, after, Jesus, after uh, uh, this happened, then Jesus applauded the woman, which was basically a rebuke to Judas. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, uh, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deeds will be remembered and discussed. In other words, Jesus put his finger on Judas's money, God. In verse 14, Judas Iscariot went to the leading priests and said, How much will you? I'm going to trade eternal life. I'm going to trade Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. You give me this silver, I'll betray Jesus. And then the Bible goes on to say that Satan entered Judas... And Judas went out and did this dastardly deed. Now, that blows my mind. How could a man that for three years saw Jesus walk on water, raise dead people, feed tens of thousands of people from a lunch bag, how in the world would he be willing to trade his eternal soul and betray him because he got offended over money? I'll tell you, he loved money more than he loved God. And his life was out of balance. And that's exactly what happened to him. Uh, the hearts of the two people... And this is where it's at. It's not about money. It's not about bank accounts. It's not about credit cards. It's about our hearts. And 
This woman was willing to give in an opulent fashion to Jesus because she loved him. Judas just wanted to buy a new camel. Or designer sandals or whatever. You know, there was a sale on furniture for his wife. But the interesting thing about this to me or the most troubling thing is how he hid his dark side behind a religious facade. Because the disciples, when Judas left for the betrayal, they thought he was going to give some money to the poor. It's like he had a religious world, but inside his heart where he really lived. I mean, Jesus even said where your treasure is. Yeah, yeah. You cannot serve both God and mammon or material riches. Jesus said you're going to hate one and love the other. Uh, hate means not, not just I don't like you, but hate means you're going to choose one and reject the other. You're going to deny one because you've chosen the other. And that's what exactly what it is. Judas, instead of the balanced life, chose money and he lost his soul. Now, it's an incredible thing. He would, Judas was willing to do anything to get it. Now, these are silver coins. When they were minted, they were about worth a dollar. Today, they're worth a little over $20 a piece. But uh, these silver coins, uh, 30 of them are what Judas traded his eternal soul for. If you can imagine how in the world, just when, when he was offering, offering this, uh, this, this, this uh, money, and they, they were willing to do anything to get the money, they would lie, they would steal, they would cheat, they would rob God in the tithe, they would, they would manipulate people, they would hurt people. Psst. Okay, raise your right hand before you go off stage. That's the pastor's coins. I will give them back. Amen. Give these guys a big hand. Now, that's kind of funny, but that's... I read yesterday that the biggest scam in IRS history is taking place across America. These people call on the phone and they say, hey, is this John Miller? Yes, it is. This is Sam Jones from the IRS. Uh, we've audited your, we've examined your 2011 tax return and you owe an additional $5,000. We're authorized today to get, allow you for $3,000 to settle your debt in completely, but you need to do it now and I'll either need your bank account or your credit card. And they've got a million dollars from people. That's right. Now... You say, why do they do that? I'll tell you exactly why. They love money. And they're willing to do anything to get it. And that's what happened in the heart of Judas. Now, let's keep going. It's a trap that you fall into. There was a headline in our paper a couple of days ago, former Arkansas treasurer convicted for bribery. Okay? Civil servant took a bribe of $35,000 for some kind of influence and sold their life away. Now, Luke chapter 12. Here's a question I want to ask, or perhaps we can ask ourselves... Am I acting like an owner or a steward of what God has given me? We'll talk about that. There's ownership. It's mine. It belongs to me. There's stewardship, which says everything I have belongs to God, and He's entrusted it to me for a season. For example, let's take your car, for example. Uh, your car, if you look at the title of the car, uh, somewhere on it is likely the bank's name, but somewhere on it is your name, too. And if, when we say, this is my car, can I suggest to you that's not exactly factual? Let's say it's paid off and the bank doesn't own it and you've got your name on it. Well, what happens with you when you die? I can do exactly what happens to your car when you die. Your kids are going to drive it or your wife's new husband is going to drive it. I mean, that's just the way it's going to be. <laughs> the Bible says we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. So there's a relationship that I want to have to material things. The Bible calls it stewardship, that God is the owner. Look at Luke 12, verse 15. Jesus said, and he's talking, a man has approached him and said, Hey, 
My brother won't divide the inheritance with me. I want you to make him do it. And notice what Jesus said, uh, verse 15. Beware. Guard. This is like that sign, ice on bridge. And Jesus said, guard against every kind of greed. Now, greed is the push that says, I want what you have. I'm not going to be happy until I have more. There's a difference between a healthy desire to prosper in life and for increase and this thing that drives us that promises happiness when more is in our hand. And Jesus makes an amazing statement that I would like to have, you know, kind of on a plaque in my house. Life is not measured by how much you own. Can you say that with me? Life is not measured by how much I own. But I'll tell you this, in our world system, life is totally measured by what you own. Because people compare themselves. Listen, if you have a nicer uh, car than the person next to you, if they have a, you know, an older Ford car, and here's a person with a brand new Rolls Royce, and you, uh, we're just different. We feel, we look up or down to people because of the label that's on the suit. Listen, we'll pay, I don't know what, $150, $125 for blue jeans. Now, I'm not knocking your blue jeans, okay? But they're blue jeans. And if you don't have them, you don't fit in the club. Well, forget that. The purses or whatever. But there's just things. Listen, I've been in duck blinds with people, and I felt something was wrong with me because I had an older pump shotgun. Come on. And somebody else had a new whatever. Or you shoot a certain kind of shell. It's something about the spirit of mammon. It's just in the world that we live today. And if we're not careful, we can get into that trap as opposed to enjoying contentedness with, uh, with what, the, what the Scripture said. Because how many know no matter what you have today, they're going to have a better one tomorrow? I don't care what it is. I have several different turkey decoys that are in my garage that started out with the, with the you know, it was the best of its day, and today it looks like trash based on what they're building in China. Are you, are you, are you with me? It's like things just continually change, and if our identity is tied up in what we have, we'll never be happy. Jesus told a story, verse 16. A rich man had a fertile farm and produced fine crops. Maybe you could say it this way. Uh, you, you got a big bonus at work. Sales uh, in your department, the highest ever. Here is, is a picture of success. And notice verse 17. I write in my Bible, and I would circle this phrase. After he was blessed, notice what it says, he said to himself. Now, mind you, we're talking about owner and stewardship. If I'm managing something for the Lord, uh, doesn't it make sense that we would pray, Lord, what do I do with this blessing you've given me? Doesn't it make sense that maybe he would have helped some poor people, some needy people? That he'd have done something for God's kingdom to advance God's kingdom. But all he did was talk to himself. He said, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. And then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then I'll have enough room to store all my wheat and other goods. My retirement account is where it needs to be. My play money, my house is paid off. My cars are paid off. I've got money set aside for a new roof and a new car. I am ready for the future. I'll sit back and say, friend, you've got enough for years to come. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. You fool, you're going to die this very night. And then who's going to get everything you work for? I've already told you that. First, it's the lawyer, then it's your wife and her new husband, and then it's your kids. It's all over. Who's going to get it? A person is a fool, now listen, to store up earthly wealth and not have a rich relationship with God. The Bible didn't say you're a fool to be wealthy on earth. Listen, some of the wealthiest people in the world in the Bible days were God's people. So wealth is not the problem. Riches are not the problem. It's just that when we get in the trap 
And Satan begins to make us do anything to keep it and to get more of it. That's where we get in trouble. Anybody do your taxes yet? I finished mine yesterday. It was a glorious experience, wasn't it? Oh, gosh. This is the first time in my life that I have been able to deduct medical expenses on your tax return. How many know that's not a good thing because that means somebody was really sick to have that much, my wife and her cancer treatments? Well, you can deduct your mileage, and I can pretty much guarantee you that the IRS is not going to figure out exactly how many miles it is from here to Baylor Hospital. And after all, if you just fudge a little bit, which I didn't, but if you just fudge a little bit, you're going to make more money. Come on. And the government is whatever anyway, and we justify these things, but you know what that is? It's the love of money. It's the love of money is what it is. For this man, prosperity was a spiritual test. God blessed him. His barns were full. He failed the test. When God prospered him, he didn't help anybody else. Uh, he did, uh, there's no indication he honored God with his tithe. He didn't pray and ask God what to do. He just used it all for himself, and he acted like an owner rather than a steward. Now, let me introduce something to you. Um, Jesus Christ, when we think of Jesus, if you look for his titles, he's often presented in the Bible this way. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was his name, a man's name. It was a common name. Messiah or Christ is not his last name. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. So Jesus, the Messiah, his saving work. But the Lord Jesus Christ means that he's our master. And I think this is one of the grave problems in modern Christianity. Though we fully believe and understand and agree with John 3.16, whoever believes in him will not perish, we don't have a biblical definition of believing. See, believing in faith in America is almost like I've added some information to my mind. And I've got, you know, I, I believe, yeah. But when you believe something, it changes your actions. For example, when I believed that ice was on that bridge one day because uh, I had a little sleet on my windshield, I got, off, uh, uh, I got off on Highway 59 and I got on the access road because I believed. And what Jesus is looking for is followers of Him. And implicit in following is doing what the Master asks us to do. Now, that's a great challenge. And we grow in this throughout our Christian life. But Jesus is the Lord of our lives. And if you look at people who wrote many of the books of the New Testament, they describe themselves as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, when we get to heaven, Jesus is hopefully going to look at us and say, Well done, good and faithful. Servant. Yeah, enter into the joy of the Lord. Now, I've got to be honest with you. Uh, I have learned, as soon as I get paid, I, get, I write my tithe. That's not an issue for me. But what's an issue for me sometimes is what I do with the 90%. What do I do with the extra that God puts in my hand? Do I treat it as an owner? Or a steward. And let me give you a story. It's kind of funny, but it's kind of sad. It's about the preacher. Several years ago, um, it was Christmas time, and somebody sent me a Christmas card, and it had a $100 bill in it. Everybody say, thank God for Benjamin Franklin. That's the Christmas present, buddy. Now, I, I tend to be the kind of person, I have lists of things I'd like to buy. Anybody else? Six honest people here. Most of the crowd was honest last night. Yeah, I have lists. I got one on my phone. I got one written down. And when I got that $100 bill, I already had some things torn out of catalogs for Christmas. Now, don't forget now, nothing wrong with the Christmas catalog. But I had some things, and, and I didn't ask the Lord about it. Well, that morning, I went to a prayer. We were having a pastor's prayer gathering. And there was a pastor there, and we were just going around the circle talking about our lives. And this man talked about his wife, who was, uh, who was uh, in uh, MD Anderson, and she had, uh, I think it was cancer, and how difficult it was and how hard it was on their family. Now, he wasn't asking for anything, okay? He was just sharing a prayer request. And I heard the Holy Spirit tell me, give him that $100. 
And I said, get behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things of John, thou savorest the things of God. Did you catch that? And I'm telling you, I just said no. And I'm ashamed of it today, but, but for about three days, it wouldn't, it wouldn't leave me. Now, sometimes I think the Lord's talking and it's not. Come on. Sometimes I hope it is. I'm not sure. For me, in my own Christian experience, it's not always easy to know the voice of the Lord. But in this case, I knew it was the Lord. And three days later, I'd had so much of, literally, some sleepless nights and conviction that I just got a card, uh, found out where he lived, put it in his mailbox, didn't write my name or anything, just said, the Lord loves you, and left. And I cannot tell you how good I felt after I did that. Now, but I'm telling you, for three days, I told Jesus no. Now, I know you've never done anything like that, and you'll probably choose another church because you have such a, such a shallow pastor, okay? I fully understand that, but I'm just, this is a, you know, most, uh, most sermons are just a God talking to himself in the presence of other people. So, I mean, you, you understand that. But my point is, is what if I got used to telling Jesus no all the time? What if I tried to be in control of my life and manage whatever I had, and the voice of the Lord began to be silent in my life? That's a danger when we tell the Lord, no, you're getting way too quiet on me this morning. Is anybody bearing witness to what we're saying? See, it's hard. It was hard for that guy in those barns, and it's hard for us. Uh, Luke chapter 18, let's wind this up. My actions reveal what's in my heart. And this is probably the scripture that speaks more to me than the other two. I don't think I'll ever do a Judas. Uh, I've... In my life, the way I live my life, I, I, I'm pretty sure that when my barns, every time I get something, I try to say, Lord, thank you. But this one is the one that sneaks up on me because it's our actions that reveal what's in our heart. Uh, if, 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 if we were to ask people, do you love money, I can pretty much guarantee you none of us would say we do because we'd look at it on a feeling level. But I want to encourage you to look at it very pragmatically, very objectively, because it's our actions that reveal our real heart. Uh, Luke 18, verse 18 Um, once a religious leader uh, asked Jesus a question. He said, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, how many would agree that there's no question more important than that? I mean, it's eternal life. But to answer your question, verse 20, Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. And he's quoting the Ten Commandments. And he mentions don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness. He gives five commandments. In verse 21, the man replied something that's incredible. He said, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I break, mo- I break some of the commandments most every week. Let me tell you why. Because Jesus said, if you're angry in your heart, come on. If you're angry in your heart, without the just cause, it's just like committing murder. So Jesus brought it down to the heart. So I, this is a struggle. But this guy said, I've obeyed them all from my birth. And verse 22, Jesus answered, well, there's just one thing you haven't done. Now, now before we read it, can you imagine... If Jesus' promise was, you're going to live forever in a real place called heaven, all the problems of life will be over, there's just one little thing you've got to do because you're only going to live a few more years on this planet. Here's what Jesus said. Sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Now, do you think that Jesus had to have that money to work his kingdom? No. It was simply a matter of his heart. And then Jesus said, all you've got to do is come and follow me. See, what Jesus is saying is, I want to be the Lord of your life. I want to be the Lord of your spiritual, but I want to be the Lord of your material. I want you to put me first. Verse 23, when the man heard this, he was sad because he was what? Very rich. Again, riches are not the problem, but it's what happens when our heart, when this trap grabs a hold of us. When Jesus saw this, he said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, think about this a moment. 
Of the five commandments that Jesus quoted him out of the ten, they all had to do with how we treat other people. So when you looked at this man, this was a religious guy. This was the kind of guy who was in church. He was a teacher. He was an usher. You know, he gave money in the globe, blah, 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 blah. This guy on the outside, everything was looking good. But have you wondered why Jesus didn't quote any of the other five commandments? Do you know the first of the Ten Commandments says what? You shall have no other... I suggest to you that this religious man, that the God of Mammon, was first in his life. And we know it was first because of what he did when Jesus asked him to do something. You're quiet on me this morning. Uh, Another of the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet anything that's your neighbor's. I suggest to you that his actions reveal that his love for money was greater than his love for God. And this religious man was willing to say no to Jesus because he loved money and he was willing to do anything to keep it, even if it meant saying no to the Lord. Sobering for me because religious people like me and like you can love money more than Christ. And listen, Satan will use, listen, Satan will use the trap to try to help us like this rac- end up in this raccoon and be scratching your little head saying, what in, how in the world did I get in here? It's just the way that it works. And the choices that I make reveal who's first. Come on, give the Lord a big hand today. He's a... Uh, with the help of the Lord, we can avoid the trap. I'm going to close with uh, 1 Timothy 6.18. It's, it's in the... Uh, It's the uh, uh, scripture that's been a part of our text for the series. So here's the question. What is the antidote for money? That is, what is, is there something that I can put into practice in my life so I'm not trapped by money? Well, I suggest it is. It's in 1 Timothy 6, and the first phrase sums it up. It says, use your money to do good. Can you say that with me? Use your money to do good. It doesn't say give it all away. It doesn't say give it all to the church. I don't want your money today. I'm after your heart. See, but he just simply said, you meet your needs, you have some fun, but use some of your money to do good. And here's what he means by that. You should be rich in good works. You should be generous to people in need. Always be ready to share with other people. I'm telling you, friend, it's just like, how many got a flu shot this year? Let me see your hand here. Yeah, I did too. You know, I, I did too. They just said I need to get it, so I got a flu shot. Why did I do that? Because I wanted to avoid. I wanted to avoid the disease. Well, this is the antidote for the love of money is just a portion of what I have is that I'm able to use my money to do good things. It's about how I find balance in this world. I'll tell you something that I've been practicing, uh, and I've been practicing it uh, several weeks now, is whenever I go to the bank and get my money and you know, uh, get so much cash, uh, I try to take so much and put it aside to just be able to give to somebody that the Lord tells me to give to. I don't get a receipt for it. I don't file on my taxes. It's none of that. I don't want anybody to know about it, whether it's a 5 or 10 or 20, whatever, whatever works in your life. But I try to do something to help me put into practice because i got to be honest. I have a side of me that's more on the stingy side than the generous side, and I want to learn to be more generous. Come on. You got quiet on me again. So what I do is I just keep it in my pocket, and I, do it, I typically do it on the weekend, and uh, I say, okay, Lord, when I start the weekend, I want to be deliberate about being rich in good works. I want to be deliberate about sharing what I have because I'll tell you, friends, that's the way to avoid the trap. Judas got caught and destroyed his soul. The rich man, when, when, when it came time to make a decision, he had so lived for such a fashion of being just spending it all on himself that he didn't even think about it and it cost him everything. 
that rich young ruler, he tried to be religious to a degree, but he never let Jesus be the ultimate Lord of his life. And when push came to shove, he loved his money more than God. If you will be rich in good works, friend, you'll never have that happen to you. And you'll be just like that guy who was walking that tightrope. Wasn't that the coolest thing? Can you imagine 25 minutes walking and the wind is blowing and he puts that old pole down like that a little more and he goes a little farther? But did you see him when he got to the end? Now, if he'd have been a Christian, rather than doing that, he'd have done that. But did you see him when it was over? He just went. And that's what you and I are going to do one day. We're going to run into the presence of the Lord and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Come on, give Jesus a big hand. He's worthy of our praise. Hallelujah. Why don't you stand to your feet? We're going to close with a song. And I want to ask you to just give me the next two or three minutes. And I want you to just ask this question. You, in your prayer to God, to say this. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me this morning? You see, because the Bible tells us not just to be hearers of God's word, but to be doers. And I wonder if the Lord has spoken to you about something today. I wonder if perhaps you have felt some conviction. Perhaps God has challenged you to do something. Take a minute with him and say, Lord... What are you saying to me? There's nothing worth more that will ever come close 